Life can take us on unexpected paths that leave us with emotional wounds and scars. But these scars do not have to be a burden that we carry alone. I'm Jocelyn Biederset, a childhood sexual assault survivor, and this is Invisible Scars, a podcast where we connect and learn from those who have come out stronger on the other side of trauma. In this week's episode, I am sitting down with Alexandra Ford. She is an anti-human trafficking expert, public speaker, and survivor. Alexandra went from 11-year-old child advocate to being sexually abused by a friend's uncle and then being trafficked by a boyfriend at just 20 years old. Her journey and work that she's doing today is actually so incredible, and I am so excited to bring this conversation to you guys today. She is breaking the barriers around trauma, she is having the hard conversations, and she is driving awareness to these incredible topics that need our attention. Please take into consideration today when you are listening and sharing this episode that we discuss childhood sexual abuse, sexual exploitation, and human trafficking. If you or anyone you know is suffering from the effects of trauma, please reach out to hello at invisiblescarspodcast.com to speak with a therapist. So Alexandra, welcome to Invisible Scars. I'm so excited to have you today to share your story with us. Oh, thank you for having me. And thank you for using your platform to, you know, talk about a subject that a lot of people would prefer not visiting. Mm, Yeah, that's the whole basis of this podcast. Um, You know, when I shared my story of trauma in my first two episodes and like, it's so funny because I've even read on your website, like, you know, having these conversations makes people so uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. but it's like, it's so important to have these conversations. I love your take on it, on sustainable trauma prevention. Like those were some things that like I took from your own website that I was just like, oh, these click with me. Awesome. Yes. It's, it's the prevention piece that really is where I focus putting all of my energy in. Um, because I think there's this like, you know, parable of pulling people out of the river. Like we can keep pulling people out of the river or we can figure out why they're falling in. Right. And that's where kind of I jumped into um, this work was really like, I don't, survivor care is important. I know that better than anyone else being a survivor of human trafficking. Um, But survivor care exists because of failed or non-existent prevention. So we need more people who are willing to get upstream and figure out why people are falling in the water. Oh, I love that. And I talk a ton about like this incredibly broken system that we have and how myself as a survivor of sexual abuse has just been like so let down from the time it happened literally until today. And we'll get into all of that, but I can't wait for everyone to hear your story because it's just, it's mind blowing what you've been through. But before we do, um, I like to start every episode with my guest. If you could share with everyone who's listening, something that you do in your life, maybe daily or weekly that kind of helps you keep your head on straight, kind of helps you stay on this path of healing and helping others work out like that sounds Mm. it sounds kind of like I don't know cheesy or whatever but for me as I have navigated what it means to heal one of the things I found you know very early in my healing journey was that a lot of what was available didn't resonate with me it felt very hushed tones and pastel colors and yoga and soft and gentle and Mm. that I'm not I'm not insulting that that works for so many people. And I kept trying to make it work for me. Like if, if this can't work for me, that means I'm, I'm too broken. Right. Like I'm not healed enough and, you know, exercise. Okay. Well, I kept trying to do yoga or just, you know, cardio and this and that. And I'm like, I hate this. I don't feel healed. I feel Mm -hmm. like I'm punishing myself. Um, and then I started honestly lifting heavy shit. Um, I just started 
picking up heavy weights and suddenly I kind of, I found my thing and, and working out didn't have to be yoga and cute outfits and, you know, a dimmed room with chimey noises. It could be Eminem in my ears and just picking up and putting down like heavy stuff. And then as I've had to buy bigger dumbbells and found myself getting stronger, that's where I felt where I really found healing is like, oh, I feel strong on the outside and it's making me feel strong on the inside. Ooh, I love that you said that. I, what I also really love is that you felt like if those modalities weren't working for you, that you felt that you were just too broken. Like how many of us has fucking felt that way? Like even when I think back to being a child, when they put me in therapy for what had happened to me, I remember the therapist sitting down with me and being like, okay, well, here's some crayons and here is a piece of paper. And I want you to color what you're feeling. And I remember being like, are you freaking kidding me? Like I'm not going to color what I'm feeling. Like, do you want to talk about this? Like at 10, I was like, absolutely not. Like, so it just goes to show that like, it's not a one size fits all, like keep trying until you find something that feels good to you. I love that. Yeah. And healing, like some of us don't want to become the beautiful healed butterfly. Some of us are just like, look, I am a weird and wonky caterpillar and I'm going to get bad tattoos and I'm going to drink whiskey and I'm going to swear. And sometimes I'm going to cry and sometimes I'm going to punch something, not someone anymore, at least. Um, yeah. Like <laughs> that's healing to me. I can, I can be angry and healed. I don't have to find this place of, you know, pastel color forgiveness for me to find healing. I don't need to forgive the people who hurt me. I need to forgive myself. I don't need to forgive them. Ooh, I really love that. Something I said recently, what I've really been working on is just that healing doesn't mean that I am forgiving anybody for what happened or giving them a free pass. It's just like giving me the free pass to actually live a healthy life, whatever that looks like, right? Like, and you're right. Two things can be true at the same time. You can be pissed off and healed. Mm -hmm. You can be angry and healed. Like, so I love that you're bringing awareness to that. It's so true. It doesn't matter what it looks like for you or me. It can look different for everybody. Absolutely. There's a quote, I think, I think Oprah said it and it's, uh, forgiveness is giving up the hope that the past could be any different or could have been any different. Mm. And so it's just this, like, it is what it is. That is what happened. It was shitty and awful and I didn't deserve it and I can't change it. Yeah. I can, I can do what I need to do right now in this moment. I cannot change what happened. I love that. Goddamn Oprah. She's so wise. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Alexandra, if you, you know, I would love for you, it's such a crazy story. It's such an incredible story, but I would love for you to tell everybody a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your journey. So I'll start with like the notes, like the high level pieces I need to kind of hit, or I want to hit is one, I was trafficked, um, by my boyfriend when I was 20 years old. I didn't find out I was trafficked until I was in my thirties. And prior to that, um, because of course I wasn't dropped on this earth as a 20 year old, my life was like sort of the picture perfect, like American Canadian dream when I was a kid, because like I grew up, my parents were together. We lived in this beautiful suburban neighborhood with a park and lots of kids. And, you know, my brother was a great swimmer. I really tried to figure out what my thing was. And, and I like, I'm not sporty. <laughs> and um, I wasn't a cool kid by any stretch. And then when I was about 11 or 12, a teacher read um, our class a story 
about a boy in Toronto who had started a uh, nonprofit called, at that time, Free the Children. And he had started it because he had learned about child labor and exploitation in other countries. And it was the first time that it came, two things. One, I came to understand that like other children didn't have loving homes. And some kids were working 12-hour days in sweatshops to make clothes I was wearing and, and all of that. And the other thing I learned was that kids can make a difference. Like I can do something beyond, you know, what was expected of me at that age, which was like, you know, hanging at the mall or going to school dances and stuff. So I found my thing at that point, which was advocacy. And so instead of doing those things of like going to school dances, I was knocking on doors, collecting signatures for a petition to send to the Canadian government, um, asking them to strengthen laws against child labor and exploitation. Okay. And how old were you? You were 11? I was 11 or 12 years old. Wow. Yeah. Like, I'm pretty sure my parents um, must have just like sat there and been like, well, okay, like she's done being parented. We've won parenting. Like, <laughs> Good for us. <laughs> we, like, yay, pat ourselves on the back. Like, we're good here. Yeah. We have nothing else to worry about. Um, I think the biggest thing they, you know, I was petitioning them to send me um, to Nicaragua when I was uh, 12 or 13 by myself so I could go undercover in a sweatshop and try and like expose. And they were just like, um, that's going to be a no. (laughs) (laughs) Trust me, I've got this all figured out. I had a plan. I like presented them with a do a tang of how it was all going to go down and, and like who was going to be my support team and like all of this. Anyway, it did not happen. This has always been inside of you, like your mission, what you're meant to be doing here is always been there. Do you like looking back? Do you not love seeing that? And it doesn't, it just like makes so much sense to you. Yes. I very, very, very clearly remember the day when, and it wasn't actually until I got involved with anti-human trafficking work that there was this like light bulb moment of like, holy shit, I was working in the anti-human trafficking movement at 11 years old, right? It's wild. That like, and I, it did not, it didn't click. It took 20 years for that to click, but I came full circle. And in the middle of that, um, well, I guess before I get to that, so how did I go from being an anti-human trafficking advocate to being trafficked and not even knowing that I was being trafficked? Yeah. Well, one thing was when I was first doing my advocacy work, we called it child labor and child exploitation. The word trafficking didn't come up. So I didn't fully understand what trafficking was, like many people to this day. The other thing was my best friend's uncle uh, began grooming me and sexually assaulting me when I was about 13, 14 years old. And that went on for many years. And that just derailed my life. But it derailed my life in a way that I didn't quite register it. Like it wasn't a movie, right? I didn't just go through this movie montage where I suddenly started wearing black eyeliner and, you know, swearing at my parents and listening to angry yeah. heavy metal music or something. Like I was still getting straight A's in school. I was still participating in after school activities. Um, I just also kind of, you know, I started smoking weed and then I started doing mushrooms. I was still getting straight A's, still participating in after school activities. And then I started doing ketamine and I was doing drugs, but for me, it wasn't like I was consciously like, oh, something terrible is happening to me. For me, I was like, I'm this loner kid and being, you know, a child advocate doesn't exactly endear you to your peers, right? Like I, 
<laughs> doesn't make you the cool kid. Um, and I was so desperate for love. And this good looking older man was showing it to me. And so while part of me absolutely knew it wasn't okay, and I think that's the part of me that started experimenting with drugs and using drugs, the other part of me felt loved and felt special and felt like maybe, you know, this was some sort of like worldly and clandestine relationship that other people wouldn't understand. Um, Yeah. And then by the time I really like, I, you know, 16, 17 years old, and I was like, okay, this is messed up. And now I have a boyfriend and am I cheating on him? Like that, I started getting very confused at that point. The uncle made it clear to me, like, you no longer have the right to say no, because you know, you've, you participate in that. What are people going to think of you? Right. So I ended up just spiraling further down, doing more and harder drugs, um, until I was doing methamphetamine. And at the same time, I've now graduated from high school. I didn't go off to college. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I was managing, um, a couple locations of a tanning salon in Oakville. And so I'm doing meth by like night, but by day, I'm a manager of these locations functional addict is sort of the definition. Um, and then this man walked into my tanning salon and though I didn't know him, I knew of him. He had been in jail for most of my, uh, teenage years, but his twin brother had been my drug dealer. So when he walked in, I knew who he was. And, um, we started dating. Like I gave him attitude. He, I think he liked it or he at that point decided he wanted to break me. I don't know. Um, and we started dating, dealing, whatever it was, like we were both doing drugs and then we were hanging out and together. Mm -hmm. It wasn't long before he turned to me and he was like, Hey, you know, we're doing more of the drugs, uh, than we're selling because he was selling meth. And he's like, we need to supplement our income. You know, you're going to help me. And I was like, yeah, for sure. You know, like I'm wifey. Like I, I knew who he was. I knew he'd been in jail. I knew he was dangerous. I didn't have some sort of fantasy that like, you know, he was a sweet romantic guy. I was so filled with self-hatred at this point um, that I, I, I absolutely wanted what he was, what he was all about. So when he was like, hey, we're going to pull these little heists, you know, we're going to steal things from house parties or bars or whatever. Um, and you're going to distract people and I I can grab some stuff. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. You know, Bonnie and Clyde, like we are partners. This is great. Mm -hmm. And then when he was like, actually, I want to do something a little more. I'm going to get, need you to take that guy into that room and distract him there. And at that point I was like, well, what if, um, yeah, I don't like, as soon as I hesitated, he was like, you don't have the right to say no. Do you want everyone to know you've been stealing from them? Wow. And for me, it was just like, well, I've heard that before. Okay. I guess it's true. I don't have the right to say no. So I didn't. And things escalated from there. You know, he put me up on stage at a strip club one day. He, um, sold me to a strip club owner to pay off debts. He like all of that. And I had absolutely no idea that that was anything other than my own fault. So a couple things, like when I think back to you at like 13, with this uncle of a friend, like the years and years of mass manipulation and control and what that did to you emotionally and psychologically, like it's shocking to me, the person that's sitting across from me right now. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it's shocking to me too. Honestly, it's, I, 
still find that like, as I'm doing this work and as I'm teaching something that I know inside and out, like, you know, the stages of grooming or something like this, it wasn't long ago that I'm teaching it. And I've taught this so many times. And all of a sudden, as I'm speaking, the back of my mind goes, holy crap, you were groomed. Like it didn't even occur to me. I just, then I'm like, suddenly all these memories kind of unlock of, of, you know, him singling me out and, and, you know, buddy buddying with me and, and learning about me and asking me all these questions, being so interested in me. And I'm just like, Oh, holy shit. Wow. Yeah. And especially because as you said, like you didn't feel like you had a ton of friends, like you weren't the cool kid. You never felt like that attention was on you. So once you finally get that, it's, um, addicting really, because if you've never felt that you, they make you feel like you were the most important person in the world. And who has ever made you feel like that other than your parents? Yep, exactly. And it's intoxicating. It's, and to, to, at that age, as a young teenager, you know, again, things that didn't click until later, but how indoctrinated I had become Mm -hmm. with the idea that my looks were what was most valuable about me. And at that time, I had either still a unibrow or I had separated it, separated it into these like awkward Nike checkmark things. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't a good, it wasn't a good look. Um, yeah. I had super buck teeth. I had like round mm-hmm. Harry Potter glasses, um, hairy arms. Like, you know, I'm being taught, I'm being given this information from such a young age that like, as a girl, my, sole purpose and value is in how I look. And I'm looking at myself going, Ooh, we, uh, we're not, we're getting pennies on the dollar here. Like this is not good. And so then when this good looking older man is like, I think you're beautiful. I was like, okay. Hook, line and sinker. You know, it's interesting because I relate to this so much. Like I was, I just did an episode, actually a solo episode talking about how much of my self-worth was wrapped up in how I looked. I had no idea that I had anything to offer other than pretending like I was perfect. I looked perfect doing, working out till I was sick because I was the friend in high school who had been sexually abused as a child. So I was like really socially awkward a little bit. I was always the fat friend. I had terrible acne. I had no self-worth based on the things that had happened to me. And once I started to like lose weight and then get attention from boys or whoever it was, I found myself getting in myself into very bad situations, allowing bad things to happen to me just because I'd never had that love and affection. And my same with you, I assume your view of what real love was and you know sexual intimacy was so fucking skewed because of what he had done to you oh a hundred percent and i think that as i got older and yeah i you know dyed my hair blonde i lost weight i got contacts and then suddenly i'm getting all this attention Mm -hmm. from you know the boys in high school and the men who drive by when I'm walking to and from high school. And it's filling up this part of me that was so empty because, and that I had put so much weight and value in because I'd been, mm-hmm. been taught that that's what it is. And then for me at some point, like you said, like I have no self-worth because 
anything involving sexual intimacy is so skewed. And I became so outlandish um, and like kind of leading with sexuality because that's all I knew. And so then I got the label of being a slut, right? And Mm -hmm. so then fine, if you're going to all, like I'm damned if I do and I'm damned if I don't. So you know what? If the world is going to treat me like I am nothing more than a sexual object, then fuck it. I'm going to be nothing more than a sexual object. And I'm going to try and get power from that. And so, you know, when my boyfriend was like, hey, can you use your body to help us make money, you know, first from stealing and all of that? I was like, yeah, absolutely. That's what I'm here for. Yeah, That's what I'm worth. That's what I'm good at. Right. Wow. You know, I, so much of what you're saying, I just like completely relate to. And, you know, before we kind of get into that, I want to take a step back for a second and talk about the friend's uncle that was abusing you. You know, did your friend or your parents have any idea what was going on? No, no. Unbelievable. How did it come out? Like, have you ever told them? Like, what was that like for you? So when I finally started pushing back against him and saying like, and most, it was honestly because I was like, I have a boyfriend and I want to cheat on him. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I'm starting to like, eh, this feels a little wrong. Um, and he told me if he didn't have access to me, he would have access to someone else indicating his nieces. Cause that was a large family. There was a lot of girls in the family. And at that point, part of it for me was jealousy. It was like, no, 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 I'm the special one. They're not special. I'm special. And the other part of it was also registering, like, I know I'm really fucked up from this and I don't, I don't want anyone else to get hurt. Um, and then it came out that he had in fact, um, assaulted two of his nieces and it came out when I got a phone call one night and it, the phone call was just, she knows And it was my friend and his ex-wife had found out that he had assaulted us and she was begging us to go to the police because he was looking for more custodial time over their two daughters who were, uh, I don't know the exact age, but like coming up into that age where um, we had been. And so literally this one night we all gathered and all of all the, the stories just came out, like just word vomited um and at three o'clock in the morning we drove to the police station then word vomited uh on the desk sergeant there um who was very confused and the first thing they first thing he said to us was are you guys drunk and i was like no no i wish i was but oh my god um and once they determined that we were not in immediate danger they sent us home and told us to report to headquarters for to give a statement and all of that, which we did. And then, then the the whole thing got entrenched in the criminal justice system. And honestly, that felt more violating than anything he ever did to me. And I hate to say that, but it 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 was what sent me like I was I was already um, on a negative path, like doing drugs and, and all of that, and that just sent me over the edge. Mm-hmm. And right into my trafficker's arms, basically. 
You know, I would love to do an entire episode with you on how inherently broken the system is and how it constantly lets victims down because I'm experiencing that myself. But, you know, you're right. It, it probably did lead you right to your trafficker's arms. And, you know, thinking about when you first met him, I'm curious, was, you know, that attention he was giving you, was it just like intoxicating? Was it something you felt you could never get out of because you loved him so much? My trafficker? Yeah. No. No, no, no. I didn't feel like I, I, I thought I loved him at the time. Um, mm-hmm. But it, what was intoxicating was the living close to violence. Honestly, we were always hanging out with people that, you know, could turn on you at any moment. He was ex- extremely violent. And part of it, like, I did try and break up with him um, fairly early into our relationship. Like, week or two or something. And keep in mind, like I say, meth weeks are different than than regular weeks because you're awake all the time. Um, so him and I were only actually together from like January till about May 2007. That's the whole time that this all happened. Um, mm-hmm. And then when I tried to break up with him, he showed me uh, a newspaper article. It was like a printed copy of a newspaper article of a girl who had been like brutally assaulted. And I think she'd been thrown through a glass table and bleach poured on her and raped. And he told me that's, that's what happened to the last girl who tried to break up with me. And so from there on, like both, I, I wanted to get away, but I also, it was intoxicating to live in this place of like, on the edge. On the edge. And, and I never knew if, you know, this was going to be the time he was going to kill me and whether I was going to be awake up the next day or anything like that. And I, mm-hmm. I didn't care at that time. I really didn't care. So I'm curious too, like what your relationship was like with your family during this time when you were like heavily doing meth, you were in this intoxicating, dangerous relationship, you know, what was, what was your relationship like with your family? My parents were going through a separation and divorce. Um, so they, they just, they had their own, you know, problems, so to speak. I did wake up my mom. Like when I came home from the police station, um, I went and woke her up. I was living, I was living out of the house with a boyfriend at the time, a different, like not trafficker boyfriend, a different boyfriend. Um, cause this is prior to meeting the trafficker. And I woke her up basically, you know, remember, <laughs> told her, kind of a very high level overview of what was happening and was like, I need you to get dressed. We got to go to the police station a couple hours. Um, And so she was there and supported me through a lot of that. My dad and I never really talked about it that much. He did know what happened, but he was, he was just a mess with the divorce. He, he was falling apart with my Mm -hmm. mom leaving. So he wasn't really focused on what I was doing. And again, I was, I always had, like, I always kept up a, a good front. I, I, at the time before I was working at the tanning salons, I was working a bar job. And while my parents weren't loving that I was, you know, slinging shots in a tiny little skirt, I was making money and I was going to work and, you know, I was, had a steady boyfriend at that time. And then once the criminal justice system got involved, it wasn't long before I broke up with the boyfriend, you know, I found a new job. Like it just all just sort of fell apart. And my parent, but the new job, I was still managing two tanning salons, right? Like I wasn't, they didn't know what You're was functioning. Happening. And because I was 20, you know, at th- that time I moved into my mom's basement, but I would be gone for, you know, several days on end. But I was 20 years old. I didn't have to report to her. Mm-hmm. Like, 
Yeah. She saw me as an adult and kind of just wanted to check in every once in a while, but she knew I was still going to work and, and making a paycheck and all that. So they didn't really know. So on the outside, you were still functioning and Mm -hmm. you were doing okay. Yeah. On the outside. I want to touch on for a second, um, you know, how you say that you didn't even realize that you were trafficked until much later on in your life. And, you know, I think for people who are listening, it's, it's something that is hard for people to understand if they haven't been through something severely traumatic like this, if they haven't been through a process of being groomed by a predator or anything, you know, victims don't even realize that they're being abused a lot of the time until later. They don't realize what's going on even years later. And you're like in your case, and I would love for you to expand on this and help others understand, because I actually believe that this is why there's so much stigma and shame for survivors and why they don't like to talk about their stories and they don't want to come forward. And, you know, people, I don't think understand the insane amount of brainwashing and control and manipulation that goes on long before any abuse ever occurs. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. So when I escaped from my trafficker, I ran, I moved away to go to school. And I like, he had almost ended my life three times at that point. And I was like, I'm, I'm not going to get out of here. And I did, I got away. uh, And I went to school. And I just like, kind of put everything that had happened in a box. And I like labeled the box, Mm -hmm. don't look here ever. And I like shoved it in the recesses of my brain. And I was like, well, that happened. And then I very quickly started retelling myself the story in ways where it's like, it wasn't that bad. You're just being dramatic. Like, you know, maybe, maybe he didn't give you a meth jam sandwich. Maybe you imagined that, like, maybe you didn't OD, like, like all of these things. And I really just threw myself into school. And that like nerdy kid that I was, that got straight A's, like just came back. You know, I, I, yeah, had applied to a child and youth worker program at Algonquin College, and I that's where I went. And then before the first year was up, I applied and got a scholarship to both the University of Ottawa and Carleton University for criminology, and I switched into that. I just, like, I was doing really, really well. And then he found me. He showed up in Ottawa on St. Patrick's Day and tapped me on the shoulder and said, I told you I'd fucking find you. And oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) And so that box that I had like labeled and, you know, duct tape shut and all of this just like exploded. And I finally went to the police and then I got entrenched in the court system again. And it, again, I spiraled. It made everything worse. And throughout all of that, and he was charged and held on remand uh, because of his history. They were actually talking about if we could get some of the major charges found guilty, they would potentially apply for dangerous offender status because he was, uh, he had such a history of violent offenses. Um, And so DO status in Canada is like probably one of the top, um, you know, convictions you can get. And uh, unfortunately, we didn't, he didn't get convicted of any of the, the more major convictions. Uh, he was released from jail, took him about a week or 10 days or something, and he found me again. Um, and so we w- were going back through the court system, and then he ended up dead, um, unrelated to anything to do with me. And that just, like, ended everything. Now, yeah. at no time during any of that was the word trafficking or exploitation ever brought up. I will say... A lot of that is because I didn't tell the police um, 
about the fact that he had put me on stage or anything, because I knew, as everyone knew, you know, as everyone believed, like the police don't care about strippers, right? They don't care. And I already had to admit that I had been a drug addict. So I was already like, I I don't want them to to tell I can tell the cops I helped him steal. Like, come on, I'm not dumb, right? You're, yeah. So you were in a shame spiral as well, right? Like Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm already having to admit and be questioned about all of this stuff when I had very adamantly tried to shove it away and pretend it didn't happen. So because I didn't understand what happened to me, I just, you know, when he died, I I spiraled for a little bit longer and then kind of got my life back on track. And I found myself going back to school again. I finished or I got a postgraduate in victimology. Um, I got an honors diploma in community and justice services. I finished the degree in criminology. Um, and then my husband and I moved to Wyoming. And I, because of visa reasons, I couldn't work. Uh, and I was trying to find something to do. Like, I'm not someone who can sit idle. So I, I heard about this woman who was doing anti-human trafficking work. And I was like, cool. Called her up and I was like, look, I know absolutely nothing about human trafficking. But I do know a fair amount about domestic violence. Um, and I've worked in this field, you know, in and around what I call the helping field. I have all these degrees. And because of visa restrictions, you can't pay me. So like, please, can I... Can you teach me about human trafficking? And at that meeting, I ended up, and I don't, I still to this day, it's one of those things where I'm like, I can't explain it because I was not there to tell a stranger about things that I had literally never told another human being at that point about what Chris had made Mm -hmm. me do. Um, Mm -hmm. And I told her, and I remember her looking at me and saying, you know, Alexandra, that, like what you're telling me sounds like human trafficking. It sounds like you were trafficked. And I remember so quickly just being like, no, 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 no. Like that's domestic violence and a series of my own bad choices because I said yes, right, to the first couple of things. So I'm the one who got myself into that situation. And she ended up explaining to me, you know, what human trafficking is and the fact that if, you know, somebody is compelling or coercing you to use your body to make them money, that's trafficking. And for me, it was just this like, holy shit, what? So I've carried, Mm -hmm. for 10 years, I've carried the shame and self-blame of thinking this was all my fault and I deserved it. And I didn't have the right to say no because I had said yes and all of that. And so that was probably like one of the most pivotal moments in my life. Do you think that that was the catalyst to your healing journey? What really made you step into it and think like, I have to figure this out? A hundred percent. Because prior to that, you know, I'd been in and out of counseling and rape crisis centers and healing and the yoga and the like, I was desperately f- trying to be like, yeah. I'm healing and I'm, I'm okay. And I could talk about what had happened to me. Certainly with the uncle, I like, I could talk very freely about that. So I was like, obviously it doesn't affect me if I can talk about it. And then the fact, like I'd always labeled myself a survivor of domestic violence, but it, it just, it always felt like, and I hate, I don't ever want to play the trauma Olympics, right? Like, it's not like my story is better yeah. or worse than yours, or I've been through more or less. But I kept hearing these stories of domestic violence. And I was like, yeah, but what is it when they make you do that? I get that, like, do this other stuff. So it never quite sat. But I never, like I said, I never knew anything about trafficking or exploitation. So it wasn't until I had that. And then it was literally like someone shattering me and just having this like, I mean, back to Oprah, like aha moment, right? Of like, yeah, this is, this is, holy crap, that was me. Yeah. 
That's wild. You know, um, thinking about how you would say to yourself, like, you know, this doesn't bother me. So it must not have been that bad. You know, I spent years thinking to myself, why doesn't this bother me? What's wrong with me? Like, why doesn't this, like, it's not affecting me, but you know, as survivors to be able to actually get through it, we detach ourselves from it so heavily. When you said earlier, like you took everything that happened and put it away in that little box in the back of your mind, you know, it doesn't stay there forever as much as we would really like to think it it does. And when you sat there with that woman and she told you like, Alexandra, you were trafficked, mm -hmm. like, oh my God, like, you know, it's crazy to think it doesn't matter the type of abuse or trauma you go through, you know, the journey in all of us, like it connects all of us because we all feel it so intensely. And I'm curious, like after that moment, what did your healing journey look like? What did you lean on? What, what resources did you use? Therapy more therapy. I think, I mean, I've, I've had so many therapists over the years, some good, some bad, you know, and part of the problem was because I was so dissociated from what happened to me, I could talk about it in therapy fine. And they'd be like, let's do EMDR. Like, where do you feel that in your body? And I'm like, I don't feel it anywhere in my body. And like, you know, some of the therapists just like stare at you expectingly, like you feel it somewhere. And you're like, I don't feel it. And okay, I feel it here, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, feel it right here. And it took, it wasn't it, like, it was absolutely this big aha moment. But then there was still the process of like getting really angry for a while. Like what? Now I've just gotten comfortable with survivor of domestic violence. And now, now you want me to wear human trafficking? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't want that label. I don't want it. I'm like, this is stupid. Mm -hmm. I don't like, I don't, I hate, I was so mad. And then yeah. we, myself and that woman, Terry, um, co-founded Uprising, which is our nonprofit based out of Wyoming that deals with um, prevention education uh, surrounding trafficking and exploitation. And it was just digging into that and then meeting more people in the field and meeting more survivors and meeting people like Terry, who is not a survivor, has not experienced, you know, trauma trafficking or, or of that form at all. But she's dedicated her life to working in this field and to helping and teaching and all of that. And I think that's where my healing journey is now, right? And, you know, in 10 years, ask me this question again, and I might be like, oh, God, I thought I was healing. I was like, you know, still not or something. But for me, it feels healing now. And it feels healing to be part of, you know, a ripple that's turning into a wave that's turning into a tsunami of people who care and are helping mm -hmm. and are wanting to change things. That's so beautiful. I would love if you could tell us what you're doing now. So are you still a part of this nonprofit? What does your work look like today? Absolutely. So I'm definitely still a part of Uprising. Uprising is, um, I call Uprising my first baby. We actually got our 501c3. So our, our nonprofit status six days before my son was born, my first human baby. Um, so Terry is at the helm of it. She's the ED and she is such a rock star. We have Natalie and Charlie who work there as well. And I just sort of have a permanent spot on the board. And because I'm not there in the day to day, I help as much as I can, but they're the ones who are, who are rocking it. Um, here in BC, I work under the brand, The Laughing Survivor. Um, and I am going to be speaking at TEDx in January. I am just putting some edits, like doing my first draft edit of my memoir that I just finished writing. 
So there's that. I got my master's of science and psychology. So I do some both survivor and academic consultation work for nonprofits and for the Canadian government and and just different sort of views on, on things like that. And when and where possible, I do trainings for healthcare workers or law enforcement or what I call community heroes, which is really anyone who's willing to invite topics that are this difficult into their life and into their dinner parties and into their backyard barbecues and all of that in hopes that mm-hmm. we can, you know, kind of come together and, and create some change. It's amazing. You know, I love this work that you're doing. It is so important. I love how you're pushing the envelope on these hard conversations and helping other survivors just like push through the shame and take back their power. It's beautiful. Well, thank you. I, uh, I think, and I'm continuing to, but finding my own voice and realizing that like I can use both the word survivor and the word victim because the amount of times people were like, you're not Mm -hmm. a victim, you're a survivor. And I was like, wait, what the fuck? I just got comfortable with the word victim. Now you're taking it away from me. Yeah. Like, yeah, you know, and being able to swear and saying like, I, I do know things and I know things because I'm a survivor, I also know things because I have four degrees. So like, mm-hmm. I can I can kind of hold myself up and say, no, you have to listen to me now. There's too many times in my yeah. life where I wasn't listened to, or I didn't listen to myself, I abandoned myself, um, or I had a complete loss of autonomy um, because my life was controlled by other people. And now it's just, mm-hmm. no. Absolutely not. And if I say something you don't like, great, bring it up to me and we can have a conversation about it. But that doesn't mean I'm going to stop saying it if it feels right to me. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of power in that. Just as like a couple of final thoughts, um, something, a common theme that I hear through this podcast and through our listeners and followers on Instagram is just the lack of self-worth and how hard it is to change that narrative in your head and how hard it is to take back that power of I'm worthy and I deserve this and I deserve this happy, healthy life. How did you change that narrative for yourself? How? I think that's an ongoing thing. I I didn't, I can't say I did. I, I can say I am. And, you know, today I am saying all those things and I believe them. And tomorrow I might wake up and be like, who the do I think I am, you know, teaching mm-hmm. people and I'm like, you know, bragging that I ha- have degrees, like anyone can get degree, you know, it's, it's, um, it ebbs and flows. And it's, I think it's a condition of both being a survivor of trauma that has a lot loss of self-worth. And it's also a condition of being socialized as a woman and socialized to put everyone else's needs before you and to not complain and to, you know, sit down, shut up and just get it done and all of that. So all of that swirls around. And on some days I'm like, no, that's it. I, I, I need to do something for myself. And on other days I'm just like, oh God, how did I dare take that time for myself? Like I, now I need to make sure everyone else's needs are taken care of. So Mm-hmm. I think the biggest thing I've learned is that when on the days where you feel like you have no self-worth or you lost it or something like that is just lean into that. Today, I feel like shit. Yeah. Tomorrow, I'll feel different. You know what? I think that that might be my favorite answer ever because it is so true. It is so honest. It's exactly how I feel. Sometimes I wake up with the most intense imposter syndrome and I'm like, who the fuck do I think I am? Right. And then there's days where I'm like, I've got this. Like, I am worth this. I deserve this life. And, you know, it's, you're right. It ebbs and flows and it's a battle mm-hmm. constant. I think that's a really beautiful, honest answer. I love it. Yeah. It's not about figuring it all out. It's just about um, 
recognizing that you don't have it figured out and putting supports in place for those hard days. And those supports might look Mm -hmm. like yoga and pastel colors. It might look like swearing at people or knowing you have people who, when you're spiraling out of control, they're not going to sit there and be like, God, you're spiraling. They're going to be like, here, spiral within this safe space. And when you're done spiraling, we'll talk about it together. So I love it. I love it. So, you know, you've come so far. Your story is incredible. First of all, I'm so sorry that you went through all of this, but the work you're doing is incredible. And I would love to know from Alexandra, who's sitting here today, what would you, what's one piece of advice you would give your younger self? I'm like, I'm like how, how younger? Like 12 or like <laughs> Pick an age, any age. Any age. I, and I, I, I think, I hope to te- teach my daughter this, but is you're not bossy, you're a leader. Ooh. I like that. I'm going to use that one. That I think there's so much in that because women and girls are taught to make ourselves small for the comfort of the people around us, whether that's our family, our siblings, or our classmates, or, you know, the, you know, how often do you hear like, uh, make, make allowances for boys because, you know, they mature slower than you. Well, how about look up to girls because they mature faster than you? Or how about girls don't actually mature faster? We're forced into it because of the way the world treats us, because we see that little girls are expected to clear their plates while little boys are allowed to run off and play. Because we mm-hmm. see how clothes hinder play, which is work for toddlers. I think it's just don't don't ever lose your voice. Don't ever let it be taken from you. You are a leader. You are not bossy. I love that. How many of us are told we're bossy? Oh, I love it. I've heard my daughter be called bossy and you're right. She's not. She's a leader. She's a leader. And I love it. Thank you so much for sharing your story with me, with everyone. Um, Alexandra, where can everyone find you? Instagram, the laughing survivor. That is probably the best place. I am on LinkedIn, though I haven't quite figured out the tone of LinkedIn because it seems to be all over the place. Um, but follow me on Instagram, uh, check out my website and you can sign up, uh, put your email in. I promise you won't even get a single email from me anytime in the near future because I don't have time for an email list, but if you do sign <laughs> up, um, you will get a notification for when I have publication details for my book and I'd love to connect with people. So yeah, Instagram, that's the best place to find me. I cannot be on all the platforms. I am on Instagram. Yeah. Perfect. Sounds good. Thank you so much, Alexandra. Thank you for having me on. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope that today's episode provided insight, inspiration, and comfort to anyone who is dealing with the effects of trauma. Remember, you are not defined by your scars and you are not alone in your healing journey. If you enjoyed listening, please make sure to rate, review, and share this episode with a friend who could benefit from listening. We'll see you next week.